I just have to say, you guys nailed it. First service got done and got quiet 30 seconds too early, and that was like, you, you timed it just perfect. So, so well done. Well done. <laughs> Happy Sabbath to each one of you. Happy first Sabbath of 2019. Is that exciting to anybody? A little bit? Very cool. It's a, it's a joy to be here. I'm going to jump into our message today. Revelation, Resolution, and the Righteous Brothers. <laughs> I got a few more chuckles than I thought, so maybe some of you didn't see the sermon title yet. That's cool. All right. Well, before we begin uh, any, any further, I want to direct your attention to the book of Revelation in chapter 2. You can follow along on the screen or turn in your Bibles uh, as you... As you feel moved, um, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And it reads like this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Please bow your heads with me for a word of prayer this morning. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here together today, to worship you, to comfort and encourage one another, to open your word. As we do so today, it is our desire that we, that we receive blessings from you. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you are welcome here. Come and flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Jesus, your glory is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence. We thank you for hearing our prayer. Amen. So once again, Happy New Year. It's a pleasure, a privilege to kick off 2019 with you for Sabbath always a treat. How did, uh, how did we weather the holiday season? Good? Good? Those are some so-so. Very good. If you're anything like me, uh, you have a New Year's resolution to not continue eating like it's the holidays. Um, that, uh, that particular one has just kind of been rolling over the last five or six years, every year. Let's keep that one on the list. Um, I don't know how many of you uh, are New Year's resolution people. I briefly I, I thought about uh, asking how many of you remember a resolution you made last year and if you were successful keeping it, but I figured I shouldn't do that because I couldn't raise my hand. I didn't, whatever, I won't do that to you. Regardless of your attitude towards resolutions or your success at keeping them, um, let's all agree that there is no bad time, whether it's New Year's or anytime, Valentine's Day, whatever you want to do. There's no bad time for us to individually and corporately assess how our life is going 
and make plans for positive change. Um, personally, I am feeling quite ready for resolution, for a resolution. But before that, I have a little story I have to tell you first, and, and we'll, we'll see where that ends up. Whoop! Too soon. <laughs> so the music scene of 1964, it's a good year, man. Sorry, millennials. I just got to say that uh, for all the ways I can relate to you, our, uh, our parents had, had a lot better music than, than us. So just want to... Got a few more amens this service in first. So yeah. Very good. Music scene of 1964. It was an evolving landscape. Uh, to quote Bob Dylan's song from that year, the times they were a-changing. Uh, the British invasion was in full swing. The sound of the Beatles dominated the, uh, the airwaves. Other rock acts were making their way across the Atlantic into our radios. And, uh, but there was a, a young American duo that was gaining in notoriety and popularity. See, in 1963, the year before, Bill Medley and Bobby Hatfield had left a larger group to sing as a two-man act. And uh, they, they booked a few gigs around the Southern California area. And at one particular concert at the, uh, the El Toro Marine Base, um, there was a young black Marine that loudly declared at the end of a song, he stood up and said, that's righteous, brothers. And they knew that they had found their stage name. After a few lower-profile television appearances, the Righteous Brothers entered the radar of legendary music producer Phil Spector, who it turns out wasn't that great of a guy. Um, now, it, it should go without saying that any praise of musical work by Phil Spector should not be perceived as an endorsement of any kind of his criminal activity, but I'll just say it anyway. Um, but whatever else Spectre is or was, he was a, a noted and gifted music producer, the kind of guy that if you were an upcoming uh, artist or act, you wouldn't mind having him produce your, your albums. Uh, he saw something special in the Righteous Brothers and commissioned uh, noted composers Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil to write a song for them to kind of kick off a new chapter of their careers. And the results of that collaborative effort of Spectre, Man, and Weil on the song resulted in not an upbeat, energetic rock song as seemed to be the staple of pop music in 1964. In fact, because the beginning of the melody was so slow and uh, because the, the melody was on a lower register, um, some listeners accused DJs of playing the song at the wrong speed. The song uh, had several things working against it. Uh, it was considered too long for contemporary AM radio. It was about three minutes and 45 seconds, which was about 45 seconds too long if you wanted to, to get consistent playtime. And um, somebody else uh, in the, the production process thought that the song, they just didn't like the way that the, the track began with, with uh, Bill Medley's vocals. It needed some sort of an instrumental introduction, they said. And that was a fight that they had to to go on and another person criticized the title of the song as we need a line from the third chorus not the first one and in spite of all of this 
Spectre and the Righteous Brothers held their ground and their 1964 single, You've Lost That Love and Feeling, was released. Now, for all the drama of the production of it, the song was virtually an instant success. Even though it debuted in just November of 1964, it was the seventh biggest hit of the year and was the fifth best-selling single of 1965 as well. It was highly praised immediately from critics and other musicians alike. And although it was once considered too long for radio, You've Lost That Love and Feeling has been played on radio stations more than any other song, as in ever. The song poignantly gives voice to a lover who is noticing that his partner is becoming increasingly distant. The behavior hasn't changed all that much, but the heart isn't behind it anymore. The tension of the song is powerfully expressed in the first verse lyric, you're trying hard not to show it, but baby, baby, I know it, you've lost that love and feeling. And forgive me, but I've heard that somewhere recently. I'm going to direct your attention back to Revelation chapter 2. See, in this, in this section of Revelation, Jesus himself has appeared to John, the apostle, who is on the island of Patmos, or kind of a, an exile. Um, that's a whole other story, but he's here on this island by himself as a prisoner of Rome, and uh, Jesus appears to him in a vision, and he begins to dictate letters to specific churches in the region for John to write. So these are Jesus' words. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, as salutations and letters go, that's not bad. Jesus is saying, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. They're not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Have you ever wondered what Jesus would say to us if he wrote us a letter? Beaverton SDA Church, 2019. Still feels weird coming off the tongue, but 2019. If Jesus were to dictate a letter to us, what would he say? It sounds both exciting and frightening. Well, this letter was written to the Christian church in Ephesus. Ephesus in that time, it was an enormous city, the fourth largest in the Roman Empire. It was a center for finance, for art, religion, crime, just about anything that you can imagine in life. It was a hub in that region. And in Ephesus was located probably the most influential Christian church in the region. For that era. The church there had been planted by Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos, friends of Paul's. Paul himself, while not directly involved in the planting, had spent about three years in that church. And of course, he had written a letter to these Ephesians. 
And in that letter, he praises them for their faithfulness to their Lord and their love for all the saints, known as a great church. And it is to this church that Jesus says these things. He says, I know your deeds. You guys do good things. I know your toil. You put a lot of effort into your work. Man, when there's an event, you guys show up. When there's work to be done, you show up in force. I know your perseverance. You don't give up. When the going gets tough, you guys get going. I know that you cannot tolerate evil men. You seek purity in the face of all the distractions and temptations of the huge metropolis around you. You strive to maintain purity in your teaching. I know how you test those who claim to be apostles, and when you find them false, you don't listen to them. You don't follow just any random teacher blindly. You search the scriptures carefully to see if what this person is saying is true. And if their teaching is contradicting scripture, you don't tolerate it. I know that you have endured for my name's sake. You are a committed people to keeping a Christian presence in this city. I know that you have persevered and have not grown weary. You have developed a stamina that will not easily fade. And yet... And yet something is missing. You've left your first love. It's quite the bombshell, right? I was trying to imagine as I was reading through this, what it would be like if on Tuesday morning in staff meeting, we like grab the mail and, oh, yeah, there's a letter from Jesus. How awesome is that? We'll sit down, we're going to pour over this. We open it up and it's like, you begin reading and verses 2 and 3 are there and you go, oh, on cloud 9. This is so good. He sees all the things we're doing. He's liking it. This is great. And then verse 4. And it's like you're listening to Claire de Lune and somebody drops a gong on some pavement and it totally disrupts the beauty. Completely upsets the apple cart. And what Jesus says here is terribly troubling and very important for us to grasp. Because Jesus says that doing good things does not make you a good church. Jesus says that trying really hard does not make you a good church. Jesus says that persevering it's not make you a good church. And then check yourself. Jesus says that having biblically sound doctrine does not make you a good church. Jesus says that avoiding false teaching does not make you a good church. Jesus says that maintaining a nominally Christian presence in your city does not make you a good church. And have you noticed, as you, we've read through that a couple times, how many times Jesus mentions their perseverance and their effort? He says, I know your toil and your perseverance and that you have persevered and that you have endured and that you have not grown weary. And sure, these are good things. Sort of. But if you stop to read between the lines, 
You see that Jesus is describing a church and they have disciplined themselves like, like an athlete, if you will. I once heard, uh, might have been Ladanian Tomlinson, I forget, but there was an NFL running back who was talking about his off-season workout to prepare for the coming football season. And he said, each NFL game is a, basically like uh, going through a car accident. So in the off-season, I'm preparing my body to withstand somewhere between 16 and 20 car accidents, which is horrible, (laughs) but preparing to endure punishment and withstand punishment, be able to keep going. That's the way that this church has, has disciplined themselves. They're so committed to their good works and to their purity and even to that very discipline that they have made their doctrine and their behavior the ultimate expression of who they are as a church. Let me say that again. They have made their doctrine and their behavior the ultimate expression of who they are as a church. Which is why Jesus says to them, you've left your first love. And I have this against you. According to Jesus, having biblically sound doctrine and having moral behavior means nothing if it is not first and foremost rooted in the love of Jesus. Just say that one more time. Having biblically sound doctrine and having moral behavior means absolutely nothing if it is not first and foremost rooted in the love of Jesus. To quote uh, Dr. Ronko Stefanovic, who also happens to be the, the main contributor to this quarter's Sabbath school lesson, so um, there's that. I'm probably stepping on, on uh, next week's lesson toes here, because Revelation 2 is probably next week, so apologize for that. But uh, uh, Dr. Stefanovic says this, if the church does not reflect the love of God, It loses the very reason for its existence. If the church does not reflect the love of God, it loses the very reason for its existence. Believe it or not, Jesus did not invent the church to primarily perfect biblical theology. Jesus didn't invent the church to do good things. Jesus invented the church to reveal his love to the world. So, these Ephesians, what are they supposed to do about this? Jesus says to the, the church of Ephesus, therefore remember, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. If the church is not fulfilling its reason for existence, Jesus says, I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to remove you from being a church. Hmm. So these three three steps to this process of, of restoration that Jesus gives out. Let's look at these really quick. Step one, remember. Consciously and intentionally Individually or as a group, both preferably, take a trip down memory lane to what life was like 
when you were living well in the freedom of the gospel and the love of Jesus. The Ephesians, again, they were well known in Paul's day for their strong faith and their love for all the saints. They're instructed to remember those times, and indeed, this, is, this church is no more than 75 years old at this point, probably a lot less. And um, there's no doubt people in this church who were there at the beginning. They can remember those good days. They were to recall those times. And then step two, they're to repent. To repent is to radically reorient in a new direction, to turn your back on one thing and step into something different. To change the way you think and act is often a good description or definition of repentance. The Ephesians are called to let go of the unhelpful patterns that they have developed and return to the patterns of life that they had when they were, were living well. And finally, a reboot. The Ephesians are to let the memory of where God has had them in the past, where they have been with God, the good days, and their desire to move back into them, to let that newly kindled love lead them back into loving Jesus, each other, and those around them like they once had. A fresh start. You guys do a lot of good stuff, but let's reboot. And to the ones who follow this teaching, who overcome, Jesus will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, which is a beautiful statement because it indeed is the bookend of the story of Scripture. Adam and Eve were in the garden. They had the right to eat of the tree of life, but because of the choice they made, they were denied that privilege. And from then on, humanity was barred from the tree of life. And Jesus is saying, hey, because of my salvation to you, I'm going to restore those who overcome, those who make loving well the priority in their lives, the right to eat of this tree. To the ones who live their lives first and foremost to love Jesus and to share that love with those around them, Jesus will give to them what was forfeited back in the garden. So, that's Ephesus. If you remember at the beginning of this teaching, I referenced a, a personal need for, for resolution. Um, see, if I'm, I'm being honest with myself, and uh, I've generally found that to be a good thing to do, <laughs> uh, I can really relate to these Ephesians. I know that over time I've allowed myself to slip into patterns and a way of life that is uh, less than ideal. And I've asked myself the question, is Jesus the reason you do what you do? Is Jesus the reason you do what you do? And honestly, I can't always answer yes. So today, I want to take Jesus' advice on how to bring back that love and feeling. I do not want my doctrine, my biblical interpretations and teachings, and my behavior to be the ultimate expression of who I am as a disciple of Jesus. 
Those are important. But I want to be defined by how I love my Savior and those around me. I want to remember the love that I have in Jesus, that while I was living for myself, he loved me as his child, and he welcomed me into his family. And in that love, he's given me the privilege of restoring others back into the family too. I want to repent into better life patterns and habits and choices. I want to reboot my walk with Jesus as we kick off 2019. I would suspect that there are at least a few of you that would like to do that too. Maybe you've never accepted the love of Jesus in your life ever before. And you're like, you know what? Now is the time. It's a new year, new me. Let's make that a reality and in Jesus become a new creation. Maybe you have walked with Jesus in your past was a long time ago when you left your first love and you're ready to restart. Maybe you are walking with Jesus right now, but you know it could be better and you know that there are areas of your life that you're holding back from him. <laughs> As a side note, uh, I had a professor uh, in school, um, Dr. Alan Parker, loved this one. He was a in conversations regarding tithes and offerings, he would begin to sing, one-tenth to Jesus I surrender, one-tenth to him I... Sorry. It's a lot of really bad jokes in theology departments, but it's okay. It's okay. (laughs) Maybe you know that there are areas of your life that you are holding back from him, and you're ready to surrender those to him and reboot your life in his love. I want to give you a moment of personal reflection right now. Just embrace the silence, even if it's awkward silence. And at least begin to think about where you might be a little Ephesian this morning too. And potentially, what resolution are you being called to make? Whatever you want to call it. I want to give you that moment. In just a moment, we're going to, uh, we're going to sing a good old gospel song. And if, if you choose to, to make that new start in Jesus for this new year, I want to invite you to stand as we sing in response. So just take that moment, personal reflection right now. Jesus, 
decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. I have decided, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Just pray with me. Father, we want to thank you for the tremendous love that we have in you. That while we were your enemies, you showed your love for us in Jesus dying on the cross. That we might have life. We thank you that Jesus rose from the grave. He is our living hope. And we thank you for never giving up on us. We thank you that even though sometimes we, we begin to stray away from where we were at at our best, that you lovingly call us back to you, just like the church of Ephesus. So God, I ask that you help us to remember wherever has been our best life in you, Bring that to our mind. May we long for that and more. And God, I ask that you give us the strength and the wisdom to repent from wherever we're living less than ideal. It takes tremendous courage to change the way that we think and act and the patterns of our life. Give us that courage. Give us that strength. Gives us, give us the wisdom that we need to know where those changes are to be made. Whether that's in a, pers in a personal moment, reflection with us individually, or in the, the loving brothers and sisters that you have surrounded us with here today, may we be open and receptive and even looking for where you are going to reveal to us where we can adapt into your new life for us. And as we Embrace this new year, it's 2019. May we reboot our walk with you. You're the God that never gives up and always offers us the opportunity to, to start over. Help us to do that. May it be that in 2019, as you look at this church as individuals and as a corporate body, 
May it be that you say, man, you guys do some good stuff. And you put forth a whole lot of effort. And you are committed to gospel truth. But what I like most about you is how you love well. May that be said of us in this next year, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.